You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So here are the parameters for our question and answer for adult Sunday school class. It's not stump the pastor. It's because that's easy to do. So it's just ask me. And if I don't know the answer to a question, I will just tell you, I don't know. I have no problem saying that. And uh, I have no problem telling you what the limitations of my knowledge are. And you can ask anything that has to do with scripture, a passage of scripture, theology, doctrine, something we've been teaching through, church policy, pastoral ministry, uh, life, sanctification, anything that pertains to what we would normally study or cover here and anything that it connects to. So with that, do we have anybody with a question? Lanny, do you want to start us off? You usually have one. Okay, good question. So in the book of Esther, it says that children will not be punished. Well, in Scripture, it says the children will not be punished for the sins of their father, and fathers will not be punished for the sins of their children. Ezekiel 18 lays that out, that every man bears the responsibility of the guilt for his own sin. And yet in the book of Esther, you see that the the Lord uh, that uh, uh, Haman, I should know that it's my mother's maiden name. Haman uh, was was hung on the gallows. Him and his ten sons and and people who related to him. And this goes back to something that I think is a biblical concept. We're going to talk about this actually today in the message at quite some length. And it's the idea of headship or federal headship. And in you see this in the Old Testament often, where the 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 actions of a certain individual can have ramifications for other people who are in his family. So I don't believe that they were hung because they were descendants of Haman. They were likely hung or executed because their father plotted to do something, and these were people, given Haman's amount of power, these are people who obviously would have been able to wield as much power or close to what their father had and be able to come back and go after the Jews. So it was an action, I think, in in that ended up preserving the Jews by doing away not just with one person who was a threat, that would be Haman, but also anybody else who could have taken up where Haman left off and also posed a threat to the Jews. Um, in that way, his children were not punished for Haman's sins, but they were handled in a certain way because of what their father had done. It's not the, his sins that they were punished for in a divine sense. It's that they suffered as a result of their father's actions. Uh, their father acting on their behalf caused them to be treated in such a way because of the threat that they could have also posed to the Jewish people. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you see it also with uh, when God commanded the children of Israel. This is Lanny's question. When God commanded the children of Israel to go into the land of Canaan and to wipe out everybody, just entire the, the entire races, the entire tribes, and entire cities, and to leave no one standing. There were obviously little children that had grown up in that environment who, in terms of their own participation, some of the evil and wickedness, they were innocent. But they were part of that group of people that God was executing judgment on. And this, this is a biblical principle as well, is that when God executes judgment on a nation or a people, not every, not all the good people or innocent people are spared from that. You see this in the book of Habakkuk when, when Habakkuk is lamenting all of the wickedness going on in the land of Israel. And God says, well, I'm bringing in a swift people to come in and destroy Israel. And they're gonna, they're gonna wipe out and execute, uh, justice in the land. My judgment upon Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And Habakkuk then realizes that if that's gonna happen, 
What am I as a righteous person in the midst of Jerusalem, which is suffering this judgment? What am I going to experience? What am I going to see? And the reality is that there are even, there are righteous people in the midst of places that are judged, that receive divine judgment, that also that judgment affects them. If judgment comes to this nation in some form, the righteous are going to suffer. It's going to be uncomfortable for us. Even though we don't deserve that, even though we are protected and preserved eternally, if judgment were to come to this nation in some way, we, we will experience the effects of that. There is no bubble that God puts around his people that preserves them from any and all difficulty when he brings judgment upon the people that surround them. You see it all the time in the Old Testament. There were righteous people in Israel, 7,000 people who had not bowed the knee to Baal, and yet God brought in judgment upon those people groups, even though there were righteous men like Jeremiah who suffered in the midst of that judgment when Babylon came in and invaded Jerusalem and took all those people captive. Daniel suffered in the midst of that judgment. Isaiah suffered in the midst of that judgment. Even though these were righteous and godly men, God did not see fit to preserve his righteous ones through the midst of that judgment that fell on people all around them. So it's the same thing with the the wicked Canaanites, even though you may have had innocent babies who were innocent, not of, of any and all sin, but innocent in terms of what God was judging those people for. They did suffer the results of that judgment, yes. And that is just. It is just for the judge of all the world to do what is right and to execute judgment in that way. What do I think happened to the innocent babies? Do they go to heaven or hell? Okay, so let me answer this question. Finish. Make sure I'm done with this question before we go back to that. Okay, and so one other thing I would add on to this is there's not only that principle that God does not shield his innocent ones or righteous ones from judgment that takes place when it's poured out upon a whole nation. Um, there's not only that principle, but there's also the principle of headship that you see in the Old Testament as well. There are individuals with whom God makes a covenant that um, he considers as a head in a federal sense acting on behalf of others whom he represents. So the nation in some ways was punished for David's sin. David's sin had an effect not just upon his whole household, but upon the entire nation because he acted in a certain way as one responsible for the entire nation over which he ruled. Uh, other people suffered as a result of, of, uh, of David's sin. We are represented by Adam and we fell in Adam. We're also represented by Christ. And so he acts on our behalf as our federal head. So this is a principle that you can trace all the way through a number of places in the Old Testament. We're going to see it today in connection with Abraham and Melchizedek. That Abraham acted on behalf of his entire nation. Melchizedek acted on behalf of his entire priesthood. And there's a parallel there that they are representatives. They represent others in the actions that they do. And so when we see, for instance, God judging the nation of Israel because of what David had done, a decision that David made, for instance, to take a census, and God God punished the nation for that decision, it is because David in that position is acting as a head of those people in some way. And so the entire nation suffers the results of the sins of its leaders. And it happens today that way as well. Um, I think that was all I was going to say about that. So now was there... Yes? Yeah. Right. And there's this, and the same thing is happening with Israel coming into the land of Canaan. They're destroying everybody who could come back later on and be an issue, and that was the just judgment of God that fell upon those people. Yeah. Uh, okay. Was there another question about that? No, your question. What happens to babies who die in innocency? It is my belief, and I don't think that Scripture... I think that Scripture gives us enough reason to have a confident expectation in the answer that I'm about to give you. Um, I don't think that we can point to a single passage of Scripture that says all babies who die in as babies 
immediately go to heaven. I don't think there's a single passage of Scripture that teaches that. I think there are issues. I know that some people want to point to David's expression when his uh, child conceived through Bathsheba died, and he said, I will go to be with him. Uh, He will not come to be with me. And I, I think that in that context, what David is talking about is not heaven or an eternal reward. He's talking about death. He's saying, I will go to the same place that he is, that is death, Sheol, and not that he can ever come back from the dead. He can't come back here. But eventually I'm going to join him in that place of the dead. So I don't think that that's an ironclad uh, passage that deals, an ironclad passage you can point to that talks about children going to heaven, children who die or infants who die. So let me lay out a case for you that I think answers this issue. Ultimately, you and I are saved on the basis of a righteousness that is imputed to us on the basis of faith, correct? It is nothing that we can do. It is all because of what somebody else has done on our behalf that you and I are saved. So righteousness is credited to our account on the basis of faith. And by that, we are declared righteous and our sin and guilt is taken away. On what basis then could an infant who never has an opportunity to express faith in Christ, on what basis could that infant possibly enter heaven? What would need to happen for that infant to stand clothed righteous before God? Because every being, every human being conceived is conceived a sinner in sin by virtue of what Adam did. So how can an infant stand in the presence of God? What would need to happen for it? What's the answer to that? Wouldn't it need to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to it as well? It would. Okay? Whose righteousness is it that is being imputed in both cases? It's not ours. It belongs to another. It is on the basis of what? Works? On the basis of those of us who can understand and believe the gospel, it's on the basis of faith. On the basis of an infant, what would be the the, the reason or the means, uh, what would be the basis or the ground of that imputation of righteousness? It would have to be grace, wouldn't it? Are we saved by grace? Okay, so how how is that grace expressed and experienced and imputed to those of us who have the capacity to understand and believe the gospel and respond to it? That grace is experienced or expressed by faith, a faith that God gives to us. God can and I believe does, impute the righteousness of Jesus Christ to infants by grace on the basis of it it expresses his good pleasure. So for us, it is faith. For an infant or one who dies, even at 25 or 30 years old, who is severely mentally handicapped and cannot explain, cannot understand anything, that they need the same righteousness that we do to stand faultless before the throne of God. I believe that that righteousness is imputed to them by grace, on the basis of something other than faith, since faith that they are not able to experience or express faith or to, to, be, to be given the gift of faith. So that is my, I believe, a Reformed, non-Catholic approach to how babies can go to heaven. It's not because we baptize them as infants. It's not because they are born into the covenant. It is not because they do anything worthy of that. It's not because they are innocent. They're not. They're guilty of Adam's sin. But here's something to remember. We are not punished and thrown into hell on the basis of Adam's sin. We are constituted sinners and declared guilty. We are born into a state of sin because of Adam's sin, but we are never punished in hell for Adam's sin. What are we punished for? The deeds that we have done, right? Because we are liars, thieves, blasphemers, fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, greedy, lustful, etc. We are punished for our own iniquities, our own deeds, not the sins of our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam. So that principle applies. I cannot say that a baby is punished in hell because of Adam's sin. That would violate Exodus or Ezekiel 18 where God says that the children will not be punished for their parents' sins nor the parents punished for their sins, for the sins of their children. There is a 
a simple, straightforward, I'll get to you in just a second, Thomas. There's a simple, straightforward equation that, that God punishes the sins of people for, uh, punish people for their own sins. The things that they have done, the deeds that we have done. What deed has an infant who dies in the womb done that is worthy of eternal damnation? They have done nothing. Are they guilty of Adam's sin? They are, but we are not punished for Adam's sin. Scripture is clear about that. So therefore, I don't believe there is any basis for which an infant could be punished in hell. It wouldn't, hell would not, hell would not express or glorify God's justice or judgment if somebody not deserving of anything that they're being punished for was punished for something that they didn't deserve to be punished for. What's that? It's just grace. So it is my belief then that those who die in infancy, God has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, knowing what knowing what he has already mapped out for them, and that because they are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that he grants to them or gives to them the righteousness of Jesus Christ as an act of grace that delivers them from that guilt of Adam and puts them faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. That, that's how, that is the theological case that I would make for the delivery or the, the salvation of infants. Now, something that's tied to that before I get to Thomas, and is, I'm assuming this question is connected with this. Okay, something that's tied to that... Um, there are passages in the Old Testament that speak of unbelieving in pagan nations who sacrifice their children to idols, infants to idols on an altar. And God calls them, God judges those nations because he calls those children who were sacrificed to those idols, quote, my innocent ones, close quote. I think it's in, I think it's in Jeremiah and it might be in Isaiah where God describes these babies who are immediately after they're born sacrificed to pagan idols as my innocent ones, one that is innocent that God possesses. He calls them his own. So Job Job says it would be better for me to have never lived than to have lived and endured what he did. Well, Job knew that he was righteous and he was going to heaven. So if if Job would have, if he had died in his mother's womb and he would have gone immediately to eternal damnation, how can Job say that that was preferable to living and enduring what he did and eventually being righteous and being in heaven? The only way that Job could make that statement or that equation is if it were true that he could have, if he had died in his mother's womb, immediately gone to presence with to God and skipped all of the pain and suffering that he experienced in this world. So there's a bunch of other kind of little details like that in Scripture that I could throw out. Those are the ones that just kind of come up to me off at the top of my head. There was a um, there was an excellent article written, a blog post written at Cripplegate. Uh, Cripplegate.com is the name of the blog. And if you go to Cripplegate and you uh, search for, I think it's Salvation of Infants or uh, something like that. You will see. I think there's the uh, Jesse Johnson is the name of the guy that wrote it. He is a master seminary graduate, if I remember correctly. I, I reserve the right to be wrong on that. And he wrote the the article that gave 21 evidences from the Old Testament that that and and like another 21 from the New Testament that infants go to heaven. And he just deals with those passages and exegetes them in their context and does a good job with it. Thomas. Yeah, can I give you a strong chapter and verse argument that says that? No, that's why I began by saying there's no single verse that you can point to that just says this is what happens. There are. Could you use the similar type of argument against it? I, th- I suppose you could say, I feel or I think that some infants are punished, and here's why. They're guilty of Adam's sin. But see, then, then what we're talking about, or if you tried to make a case on the other side, then what we're haggling over is how do we how do we deal with the issues of divine justice and what warrants that, 
and what is just and what is not just and what is righteous and what is not righteous and what is necessary for an infant to go to heaven. That's why I'm laying out a theological case that I think is consistent with um, the doctrine that we find in Scripture regarding God's election and imputed righteousness and the importance of faith and the justice of God and what that means for the case of infants. And I think that that is consistent with Job's testimony as well as um, God calling uh, infants who are sacrificed his innocent ones and other passages of Scripture where children who die are are declared to be innocent. There's more than one passage. And I mentioned that one just simply because you could Google it, but there are other passages as well that describe children being innocent. And it's not that they're innocent in terms of that they're not sinners. It's that they're innocent in terms of that they haven't done anything worthy of this judgment. Right? When you stand before a judge and he says, look, I'm going to, you killed this person. And you say, I'm, I'm innocent. What you're not saying, you're not saying I'm perfect. You're saying I'm not guilty of the crime for which you want to punish me. And an infant can say the same thing in the justice bar of God. God can say, I'm going to, I'm going to punish you for your lying, your thieving, your adultery, your blasphemy, your idolatry, your greed, your homosexuality, etc." And what would the innocent, what would the baby say before the final bar of God? I'm, I haven't done any of these things. I'm innocent of these things. So what then does hell mean to that infant? How is God glorified in the destruction of that one for its own personal, cognizant, intentional, willful rebellion and rejection of the light? It has received no light. Therefore, therefore, justice is not due to that infant. So that's kind of the case that I would make for that. Yeah, Jan? Yeah, what is the age of accountability? Because I, I don't think that what I'm describing is an age of accountability, but probably a condition of accountability. And I, I think that for every child or every person, that's going to be different. Um, I think that the, the, there has to be a point, and God, the important part of, of this doctrinal discussion is only that God knows when that person is guilty of rejecting the light and rejecting the truth. Yeah, that's right. My four-year-old daughter would understand her guilt, and I'm talking about Taryn now. My, uh, Taryn as a four-year-old could understand her guilt and her willful rejection or willful rebellion in a way that um, somebody else who's mentally handicapped, I won't use my oldest son as an example, but somebody else who's, <laughs> who's mentally, who's mentally handicapped might not understand that same degree of account, that, the same moral equation. God does know because God knows the heart, and this is what we're ultimately we're going back to. God knows the heart and he knows when this one who has received this light has rejected it and is therefore accountable or guilty. So we're talking about a condition of accountability, not an age of accountability. And I do think that that varies. <laughs> Um, I do, I, this is why we are assured in Scripture that God Himself, He knows the heart. He, he knows the heart and He sees it and He reads it and there's nothing hidden from His sight. And so we, we can trust in and rest and relax in the fact that the judge of all the earth will do what is right and He will do it in accordance with how each, how much light each person has rejected. Yeah. It is. And, and because, be, because it's not a cut and dry thing like that, I think that that's why Scripture is not, it doesn't absolutely lay out this case that, you know, children when they reach six years old are therefore morally accountable. Well, not every six-year-old would be. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't sin. It's that when that infant who is who is six weeks old and they're thrashing and they're red in their face and they're screaming because they're hungry, they're frustrated, they're itching, or they've gone to the bathroom or whatever it is, that is an expression of a sinful nature. But how is it morally accountable for that? What light does it understand? Now, my 20-year-old, 21-year-old son who does decides to do that, it's a totally different thing than a 21-week-old child who does that. And he's morally, he's more morally accountable now for that type of behavior 
when he does that and he starts screaming and yelling and, and crying because he's not being fed. He's far more accountable now when he does that. It's so much fun having my kids in Sunday school. It's, it's, uh, he's far more accountable now for behaving like that than he did when he was 21 weeks old. 21 weeks old, he didn't understand any of those moral issues or, or anything. It doesn't, he's still expressing a sinful nature, but he is not expressing a hatred for the light. That's two totally different things. Yeah, Peter. Now, what do you what do you say to somebody who's in that situation, who's lost a child? I don't think that that is the best time to say, okay, sit down, let me explain to you imputed righteousness and the theological case for this. There is a point where you you enter into the pain of that individual who's gone through that and say, look, I, I think as uh, from what I read in Scripture that we have every hope that we shall see your loved one in heaven. I, I believe that that is the case. And so I hope in that I trust in the judge of all the earth to do what is right. But ultimately, we have to fall back on the sovereignty of God who has allowed this in this situation. He knew this from before the foundation of the world. He appointed this for you in this situation at this time because he knew he is going to do something through this to sanctify you and to work out his grace and his good pleasure in your life. And he is accomplishing something in this. So trust him and believe in him and and worship him through this. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And ultimately, we have to come back to the sovereign hand of God who has appointed all of this for his children. And so... Um, that's ultimately what we trust in. And, um, yeah, that's, that's what I would do. Thank you for that. I want to encourage us to go back now. Yeah. And one last thing I would, I would say about this issue, if, uh, if we're going to be able to move on to something else after this, is that your, a disagreement on this issue does not mark one as a heretic. So I know good theologians on the other side who will say, um, that, they believe that some infants go to heaven, some infants go to hell. Um, there would be some people who would say all infants go to hell, and that's just God's mercy is is allowing them to die before they had an opportunity to grow up and express their depravity and then heap up judgment for themselves. Some theologians would say we know absolutely for sure, chapter and verse, that all infants go to heaven. Uh, some people would say we just can't know either way. Whatever your position on this, this is a non-essential issue. And and all I'm all I'm trying to do is present to you something that I think is true based upon Scripture. That I think there's a solid theological case that's consistent with this. And this is consistent with our view of grace, imputed righteousness, and faith, and and God's grace in all of this. And it's consistent with the judgment of God. I brought up one, okay one last point. Um, I brought this up before. Imagine take, let's let's take for instance a scenario in which a baby dies in the womb as a as a result of a miscarriage. Our belief is that that baby is a, a whole living and distinct human being, right? From the moment of conception, that they are made in the image of God, that they're valuable, and that there is a soul there at the moment of conception. That baby dies in the womb and is miscarried. What is the next thing that that baby knows or experiences if it is an active living soul? If you believe that that, that baby goes to hell, then you'd have to say it wakes up in eternal damnation. Now, what does... What does the justice of God mean to that infant? If it wakes up in eternal damnation, what's the first thing it would say? How did I get here and why am I here? Right? This justice does not make any sense. Justice is not just in that situation. Because it, it is not aware of any crime that it has done that warrants this judgment. Justice only makes sense if the person who is being judged is aware of their wrongdoings and their crimes and their guilt, then justice is just. Then justice makes sense. And in the eternal analysis, 
for the reprobate or the unbeliever who is cast into eternal lake of fire, judgment will be just and they will recognize it and they will acknowledge it and they will bow the knee and then they will perish for everlastingly. But justice will be just in their sense because they will understand exactly that for which they are being punished. Peter. Yeah, the, the question being is there seems to be two states of our guilt, the, the removal of our guilt because of what Christ has done and the imputation of his righteousness. I don't, I don't know if I would experience that as two states. That's definitely two sides of the same transaction. I would describe that as the same transaction. That is justification because justification is not just having my sins, not just being declared innocent. It is being declared righteous, which is a positive righteousness. And so those two things do have to go together. They are appropriate. You can't have one who is who is declared innocent of all their wrongdoing and not also declared righteous. Because the one for whom that sacrifice has been made that atones for that sin, that one is also declared, declared and made righteous by that same sacrifice. Yep. Yeah, that's what, that's why I laid out, when I laid out the case, I started with that. Why, what must an infant have in order to stand before God in heaven? It must be declared righteous. It must be righteous. Innocence is not sufficient. Yeah, Nora. That's fine. I'm, I'm glad to have another question off of this topic. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Darn. When a child dies, what are they going to be in heaven in the glorified body? Yeah, I... Perfect age? That's what Lanny's hoping for. If, if he... Because if it's some reflection of our age here, then I want to die young and healthy and physically fit and everything else. And then, Lanny, you're, you're in trouble. <clears throat> so I do think that our glorified bodies will have some, some whatever the ideal condition for that will be, it will be, uh, that's what we will have in heaven. Um, how many of you read the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn? Okay, so this is not one of those, uh, you know, you get to go to heaven and see what's there and come back and tell everybody about it, books that I criticize. It's not one of those. It is a theological, it is a theological biblical study of what scripture says about the eternal state, both for the wicked and for the, uh, for the righteous. And so Randy Alcorn in that book, and I would commend it to you highly because in the first part of the book, he goes through a theology of what scripture says about heaven all the way through. It's all biblical. The last part of the book, he answers a whole bunch of questions. And when he answers those questions, he says, based upon what we know in the first part of the book, here are the possible things that we might be able to sort of, he calls it, I'd call it sanctified speculation. We can speculate about these things. We could suggest these things. So Randy Alcorn lays out something in the book that I think is, and there's no chapter and verse on this subject, and I don't think that I can, you can't lay chapter and verse to this, but you can say this, this would be fantastic. This would be amazing. If, it, if in the eternal state, women who had miscarried their children here or lost infants and children here, if when they get to heaven in the new heaven and the new earth, they would be allowed to raise those children who would be kept in that condition for them in the new heavens and the new earth without any sin. That would be awesome. Now, is there a chapter and verse that says that? No, there's not. It just says that we're going to have glorified bodies. It doesn't say what the age of those glorified bodies will be. It doesn't say if those bodies will develop or get better over time or, um, or, or what, but we will have glorified bodies in heaven. So wouldn't it be gracious, this is what Randy Alcorn's point is, wouldn't it be gracious and awesome and just like our God if every woman who suffered that loss here got to experience the joy of raising that child in a sin-free environment, glorified bodies there? Wouldn't that be just like our God to do that? And yeah, it would be just like our God to do that. It's consistent with everything we read about Scripture, but is there a chapter and verse that says that's how it's going to be? No, there's not. 
So don't, I'm not holding that out for anybody, right? You might, we might show up and find that everybody there, whether they died in infancy or as a child or as a teenager or whatever, is in a state of perfect adult maturity. That, that would be, it would still be consistent with the nature of our God, if that were the case. Heaven. Just Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it. Um, because there's no, because it will make you think about the eternal state in such a way that you long to go there. And, and you look forward to it. And it, it there's, scripture says far more about, um, what, how we, how and where and what our eternity is going to be like than, than we might at first even think or recognize. All right. Uh, hold on. I think I had one back here first. Go ahead. Okay. Is yours related, Nora? Yeah. Okay. If we're not given in marriage? Yeah, is marriage necessary to raise a child? Okay. That's how I would answer that. Yeah. But even if it's, even if it's not, um, you could still raise it. Yeah. And just because I'm not going to be given in marriage does not mean that I'm not going to have a special relationship with my wife, whom I've spent my entire life in marriage with. I don't, I don't expect that my relationship with Rick is going to be the same as my relationship with my wife. As great as you are, brother, but it just, so I, all of our experiences and our knowledge and our, our relationships and everything, they go into eternity. That's, it's, this, it's a continuation of what this is, but it's sin free. So, um, is it connected to this or not? Go ahead. Right. Yep. God will give it a body. So Alcorn's position on that when he, when he states that is simply to, simply to say that if this were the case, there's nothing inconsistent with what Scripture does say about heaven. But we don't, we don't know that. Ultimately, we don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Sorry, we don't know the answer to the question of whether infants will be able to be raised by, by mothers or not. Right, I understand. Right. Twenty-two and glorious, gorgeous. All right, it'd be interesting to see what you look like at twenty-two and gorgeous. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, yes, Jenna. Can I explain what Federal Vision is and who some of the pastors or authors are who hold to that view? Huh, this is okay. Seven minutes. All right. Federal vision is, it's kind of come into, it's kind of come into, um, popularity in the last several years. Um, I think largely, though not solely through the ministry of Doug Wilson, uh, from Moscow. He has done a lot of work in talking about the federal vision and presenting it. Doug Wilson is, I think, is one, he's a fantastic author. But I, f- I fear that from the things that I've read from him, what he presents in terms of what the federal vision is, it's a little, he's, he's, it's a little bit unclear. I think because it dances around the idea that the federal headship that we enjoy in Christ transfers down to me as an individual and what I do and the righteousness that I can acquire for my family in representing my family. It almost becomes, uh, I think, when, when taken to its logical conclusion, and I'm, I'm not, I haven't studied this as much as I should, but here, here's my initial assessment of it. Taken to its logical conclusion, it would almost seem to suggest that um, my children 
can be declared righteous or made righteous on the basis of what I do as their federal head. And that, I think, is the danger of it. It's, it, it flirts dangerously close. It is, it is, I think, covenant theology and the idea of federal headship taken to an extreme, taken to a point where Scripture doesn't warn us taking it. So much so that not only did Christ do what he did on our behalf so that we could be made righteous, but that I, acting as the federal head, the head of the covenant of my home, can do certain things that impute righteousness or acquire righteousness for my children. Um, and, and I think it plays in or it, it perfectly fits with infant baptism or pedo baptism and how that's expressed in some covenant-believing uh, communities. Um, so I, I don't think it's a healthy, I don't think it's a healthy doctrine. I don't think it's, I, I think that there are a lot of dangers to it. I think that it's borderline, it's not heretical as, as guys like Doug Wilson will state it, but it is borderline heretical in the way that it is going to be taken or, uh, implemented, I think, in, in some of its, some of its manifestations. So would I stay away from it? Yes, I would. I don't think that, I don't, I don't believe in covenant theology or that my baptizing my child baptizes them into the community or that by virtue of my belief that my children are part of the believing community. Um, they're not. My, my children have to repent and believe on their own if they're going to be part of God's covenant and to enjoy the blessings of forgiveness. They get nothing just because I'm their father. They get no special treatment. They get no special righteousness. They get no special uh, apportionment in heaven or anything like that. And federal vision seems to suggest that there is a federal headship an acting as a federal head that has in some way affects salvation or brings salvation or conveys grace in some way. And I think it is a dangerous doctrine. I don't believe that Doug Wilson is a heretic. I'll go on the record as saying that. Um, but I think that he's dancing with some doctrines that are not healthy in that way. Would I recommend staying away from the books written by his daughter? I haven't read any of the books written by his daughter. I, I don't read a lot on motherhood or... Uh, birthing children or anything like that. So I, I don't know where she's at on that. I don't know what her doctrine of theology is. Um, I, I would say you should stay away from... Um, if you're going to read stuff like that, at least be aware of the source and what could be coming from it and read with discernment. Um, I, 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 just because somebody writes from a perspective that I disagree with or even that I find heretical, if that were the case, it doesn't mean that I, I wouldn't read through something like that I would never read through anything and just take all, all of it in without any kind of discernment. If I understood that there might be a concern with the source, then I could read through it, but I would be very critical. I would be reading through slow, thoughtfully, and really analyzing everything that's said and the way that it's said. Um, but my guard would be up in that situation. But I, I, if you're going to, if you're, if there's a danger with the source, there are a lot of other good books on parenting and motherhood that I would read by other authors that would not be in any way problematic. So if I were going to, there's so much available to us. If I were going to use my time to read something, I would read something that is, I know is a good resource. Um, even if people say, well, this is great, and you think, well, the author is problematic and the issues here really are, are, are dangerous issues or they could be concerns, why do you spend the time reading it? I just only have so, many, so much time in the day. Um, the only reason that I ever read garbage is because I'm going to critique it in some way and try and provide a critique for somebody else that would be of benefit to them. But if, if I don't have to critique the garbage, I don't read the garbage. I just don't have time to do that. I'm not that fast of a reader, and I just... I have a wife and kids, and I have too much to do, so it's, it's I just don't spend time doing that. Find another source. The, there's good stuff put out by um, um, by Shepherd's Press. There's good stuff put out by uh, MacArthur's Ministry on parenting and motherhood and things like that. There are other good resources out there you could spend your time going through. You're going to get the same meat, but you don't, you're not going to gag on all the bones in the process. Or potentially read something that that is going to deceive you and make you think a certain way that's going to open you up to error. <clears throat> So, uh, Jenny had a question first, I think. 
Yeah, that's a very good point because the, the author that Jenny's bringing up, I'm just saying it for the sake of the recording, is that we shouldn't automatically reject the writing of a daughter just because her father may write something that we would disagree with. And the argument would go, unless you openly repudiate what it is that he has said, in other words, publicly dishonor your dad in some way, unless you do that, I'm not, you're not worthy of writing a book or being or having a voice or anything like that. And that's certainly a poor argument um, because she may not want to publicly repudiate her dad. Maybe she's working through it. Maybe she isn't even aware of what her dad teaches or she hasn't thought through those issues for herself or whatever. There might be a whole bunch of reasons why she might not repudiate for that, but doesn't give her, that doesn't, that doesn't lessen her status there. It, it might be a cause for concern. But unless, um, yeah, you, sh- you shouldn't expect her to openly repudiate something in order for her to assume that she doesn't believe it. Um, what's that? Right. What's that? No, I didn't. No, I, if she, there's a concern there, and that's why I said at the beginning, I don't know what she believes on it. She might or she might not believe those things. So if there's a cause for concern there, then there are other resources. If you know that that is a concerning thing and you know that she believes that, then read something else. But if you don't, you could read it, but knowing that there's a cause for concern, I would be hyper hyper discerning with it. Uh, doesn't mean I would reject it. I wouldn't reject it just because her dad believes something. That wouldn't be right. But knowing that her dad believes that, it would be something that would make me be very discerning in my reading. Yeah, I hope that balances both of those because is that what you're saying? Ron? Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> All right, anybody else? Yeah, let me grab her before you. You've already spoken like 18 times, so go ahead. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's very true. Any, anything that we read, we need to have the guardrails up and be discerning. Um, my my discernment filter when I'm reading John MacArthur is a lot less than my discernment filter when I'm reading uh, Beth Moore. Okay, so those are two radically different. It's interesting that I raised up those two. Those just came off the top of my head after the con- recent controversy. But um, so, but my, there is a discernment filter there when I'm reading John MacArthur. There's a couple things that John MacArthur and I would disagree with, but for the most part, 99% of the stuff that I read from John MacArthur, I don't have any issues with. I'm, I mean, doctrinally, he's there. But I'm still reading, discerning how it is that he's talking and what he's saying and the argument that he's making. Um, but somebody I don't know anything about when I'm reading them, my mind is doing two things. I'm reading the content for the content's sake, but I'm also I'm also analyzing the argument that is being made in the writing so that I can understand the perspective that they're coming from, and I'm looking for things that they're saying that might indicate the perspective that they're coming from. Yeah, the only person's writings whom I uncritically trust are my own. That's the only one. And you should you should not trust them uncritically. <clears throat> okay, Peter, do you have something else that's quick before we're done? Uh, um, good sources that I would recommend. I, I love John MacArthur's ministry in Grace Community Church. Almost anything that they produce is... I say almost anything because they might there might be something in there I'm not aware of that's that's not great, but anything that they produce is great. I love that ministry and... Um, anything by John MacArthur is good. I like R.C. Sproul. I don't, dis- I don't agree with him on everything, but you know, I, I know where our disagreements are at, and those are safe areas of disagreement. I love R.C. Sproul. Uh, Cripplegate is a good blog. You used to be able to trust the Gospel Coalition, but they've gone full leftist, woke, social justice nonsense now. So I, I, don't, I don't read anything from the Gospel Coalition now without my critical filter ratcheted all the way up to 10. Um, what some other... Oh yes, uh, yeah. Stand to Reason Ministries. Greg Kokel is a good guy. Don't, again, and 
And my, my saying that these are good guys or good resources is not an implicit endorsement of everything that they believe. I had some good conversations with Scott Klusendorf while we were here. He and I don't agree on a lot of things that I thought we did agree on some things. I mean, they're not essential issues. But we could still be friends, and we had some good conversations back and forth. But we're not on the same page on every doctrinal issue. And yet I would heartily recommend anything that uh, is produced by Scott Klusendorf and his ministry, as well as Wretched Radio and Todd Friel's ministry, Way of the Master with Ray Comfort. Um, I'm trying to think of some other big national uh, ministries. Uh, those will get you started. But those are all things that you see out in the foyer and the stuff that we produce. Yeah, right. Yeah, always go back to Scripture with everything that we do. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.